0: Today's podcast is brought to you in part by Paceler AG, the makers of PRTG Network Monitor. PRTG monitors your whole IT infrastructure 24 by 7 and alerts you to problems before users even notice. Find out more about the monitoring software that helps system administrators work smarter, faster, and better by visiting PACLER.com today. Or just Google PRTG. Today on the Priority Queue, some practical Python, we thought we'd walk through an example of how to use Python to deploy a technology, and in this case, BFD, because why not? And our guest today is Billy Downing. Billy sent us a link from his blog sharing some of his Python knowledge, and as I dug around through his blog, we started kicking around ideas for a show, and so here we are. And Billy, welcome to the Packet Pushers Priority Queue, and if you would, just tell people who you are and uh, what you do.
1: Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. My name is uh, Billy Downing. I'm currently a data center engineer over in Kuwait, working for the DOD. All
0: right. So we you were literally, I don't think we could be much more opposite as far as where we are on the planet. I'm up in uh, northeast U.S. and you're in Kuwait. Sunny Kuwait over here. Sunny Kuwait, which is not here. It's the middle of April right now. and We just got two inches of snow and ice dumped on us. So it's... Uh, yeah, not sunny. So, <laughs> well, we want to have a discussion, Billy, as we were going back and forth an email about uh, BFD, bi-directional forwarding detection, about what that is, and then uh, just a little bit about how you use Python to help you deploy it or, or how you might, because you've written about that in your blog, and I thought it'd be a fun thing for us to discuss. So let's start at the beginning. For folks, I mean, most of the world's probably got some familiarity with BFD, but for some people who aren't or have a refresher, give us some background. What is BFD?
1: yeah, so in the grand scheme of things, I'll give you like the the context of where we use BFD I suppose, and then I'll go in from there. Perfect. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, we have protocols that work efficiently at each level of the convergence model when it comes to infrastructure. That model's you know made of roughly four steps. the first step being to figure something out when it went wrong, letting everybody else know what was the issue. Uh, then after figuring that out, they figure out the best way, the best new route, uh, and then they go around and install that. Kind of uh, detect, distribute, compute, and then they finally use. For a lot of deployments, the protocols beyond the detection phase, you know, like uh, OSPF, EIGRP, and stuff like that. For detection failure, they rely on link state, the directly connected interfaces. Meaning, uh, if you have a peer, if you're peering with OSPF through interface E1, and then uh, E1 loses signal, OSPF on that side goes down immediately because it knows that. Its interface is now down, right?
0: Yeah, it's it's got, that, it, it's got that awareness that there's a physical interface that it's running across lying underneath. And so, right, if that Ethernet interface goes down, then he knows, ah, I'm going to have a dead peer, obviously, because the link just went down.
1: Yeah, and, and the other side, if they're directly connected, he'll, he'll see the same thing, right? But there's a lot of situations that involve uh, routers that are indirectly peered with each other. So they're on the same layer 2 domain, but not necessarily in the same physical plane or, or layer 1. Therefore, the signaling of those line interfaces isn't as uh, isn't a clear indicator of path forwarding capability. So, if one interface goes down on one side, the other side might not be aware.
0: So, we could have like a couple of routers connected via switch. They're not plugged in directly to one another, and so if like these two routers are peered through that switch and Ethernet link goes down for one of the routers but not the other there isn't that immediate awareness by the OSPF or whatever the routing process is that hey I've lost my connectivity that that's the point you're making here
1: yeah exactly so so say for an example if we have router 1 and router 2 connected through some some sort of intermediary device like a switch or IPS you know something that can be not layer 3 connected to each router but just you know passing layer 2 information uh, so the routers think that they're peered logically right but not physically hmm. Uh, It's like what you're saying. So if uh, maybe on that IPS, an interface connected to R1 goes down, uh, so R1 loses link state on his side, he'll kill that OSPF peer to R2 immediately. But on that other side, R2 still has an interface going up to that IPS, whatever. So he has no idea that the actual physical path is down. So he'll have to wait until his dead timers expire before he can actually kill that peering.
0: Exactly. Right. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this is where BFD kind of comes in. So BFD in that same scenario uh, of R1 and R2 connected through, I have a session between each other, say OSPF, through some sort of IPS or, or a switch or something. Uh, to ensure the forwarding path is good without relying on line protocol, uh, the physical interface, BFD allows sort of a detection uh, that's used in a different manner and also allows sub-second failover. So BFD acts like a service, kind of like an app for higher-level protocols that rely on it and lends this detection feature to those protocols.
0: Yeah, okay. So because BFD, the, the two endpoints are, are talking to each other. They're sending a constant stream of data, and those routing processes are, are BFD aware. There's knowledge there. So if the two BFD endpoints can no longer reach one another, BFD will inform the routing process. That uh, hey something's broken here, and then uh, the routing process knows. Oh, I should take down my peer. He's gone now because BFD told me so.
1: Yeah, exactly. So this begs a question, right? So like, oh, so BFD is doing the same thing. What's better than it just having OSPF hellos or whatever? So how it's better is uh, BFD uses a control packet to establish adjacency, just like the other protocols do. But it also has what's what are called echoes. You might be asking, why, why would I not just use fast hellos or things like that? And so uh, hello protocols, in most cases, work by sending a packet destined for the peer, having the peer punt that to the CPU, analyze it, and then provide a response, right? So and this is the case of like if you're using fast hellos on a, on a, a routing protocol. So this means the hello protocol uh, to have like subsec intervals cause a lot more work for the CPU, which might not be something you want to get done, right? And it does it through the control plane as, a, as opposed to the forwarding plane. So BFD, in most implementations, provides a different mechanism for forwarding path verification, which I was mentioned earlier is so the echo mode, right? So rather than BFD relying on control messages being sent back and forth, it also sends an echo packet. And the cleverness in this echo packet is it's uh, sent through UDP, but the destination IP address is the same as the source IP address being itself. So. When the distant end receives the BFD echo packet, because it isn't destined for itself, it simply forwards the packet right back out towards the destination. So in some platforms, this can, do, this can be done in hardware, obviously. So it helps out with that hello protocol mechanism is because it allows for asynchronous uh, detection of a link. It doesn't actually rely on the far side uh, to do any sort of self-originated. Uh,
0: yeah, we're not hitting the control plane CPU for every BFD packet
1: exactly yeah so when you send a packet you're expecting to get your own packet back you not you're not relying on uh on the far side to generate a packet and send it back to you right so a lot of people hear bfd ran in asynchronous mode which means that one side is is sending its own hello and he's just expecting to get his own hello back and because all of this is happening without needing to be processed by the distant router it's it's how it really verifies the forwarding plane as opposed to the control plane which is what most other protocols do and these echoes are being sent at at you know millisecond intervals so it's much quicker to detect a failure than than OSPF fast hellos or any, other, any any other protocol that really uh, maintains a hello protocol
0: yeah and and again not because they're not control packets that that super fast capability in async mode you're getting because when the packet's hitting the remote side it's just getting flipped right back around in the data plane, oh, i got to forward this right back to you know, this particular IP address. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So in that case, uh, previously we were talking about the with the IPS in the middle. Router 2, as soon as that link on router 1 is dead, maybe he doesn't know the link is down, but he would have already sent you know, the amount of BFD echo packets that equate that to less than one second before he realizes there was a failure, as opposed to waiting, you know, for example, the 40 seconds for OSPF or 15 for EHRP or something like that. Mm-hmm. So having said, I mean BFD, it still does use control packets to establish peerings for like authentication and things like that. However, when you have the echo feature enabled, it doesn't rely on those control messages to establish state of the link. Yeah, it supports uh, two different modes as I mentioned earlier. There's asynchronous uh, and then there's demand mode. I, I haven't seen a lot of support or uses for demand mode. Mostly, I've seen people running with an asynchronous. But both can be ran with or without echo packets, depending on your situation that you're in. But you know, sometimes that's sometimes the mode that you're going to run it in depends on the the unique situation that you're in. But a lot of times, people run it in asynchronous with echo packets, and that would be the situation that we kind of just explained. Mm-hmm. And then uh,
0: it seems like there's a lot of routing protocols that are are what I would describe as BFD aware.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's another benefit of it as well is you can kind of offload that uh, hello capability from several different protocols into and kind of aggregate it into one, one uh, service that you're providing through BFD. So if you're running, you know, BGP across some sort of circuit, and you're running OSPF with your immediate something, and you know you have a static route that you want to track the next hop with, you can use all that with the same protocol on BFD as opposed to having each one rely on their own set of timers.
0: Hmm. And so, uh, commonly, that would be supported uh, BGP, uh, OSPF. We mentioned uh, EIGRP. What other ones? Uh,
1: there's LDP, static routes. Um, I mean, I think I think RIP and things like that. If you're still doing that, yeah.
0: BFD's been around for so long. There's pretty pretty broad support at this point, and uh, and, and with a with a bunch of different vendors as well. So,
1: yeah. I think it was originally brought to the idea through Juniper, and then it's kind of um, been adopted by most vendors. I've I've never I haven't seen an issue of it being supported somewhere. But
0: hmm. now it's not a routing protocol. You know, BFD is not a routing protocol. It's just about that uh, you know awareness, that link awareness, in the situations that we just described. But you know, if someone's wondering, how would you describe it as as, as fitting into the routing stack?
1: So BFD, it's, it's only the first step. Um, and while I think it's a pretty clever solution to the problem of you know providing detection, it doesn't, it's, not the, it's not the full you know, convergence solution, right? It acts as like a service to those upper layer protocols in regard to that convergence process. So they use BFD forwarding path detection to determine whether or not they have a successful connection to their far side peers. So BFD by itself doesn't really do anything uh, if you configure a BFD session on each side without registering it to an actual upper layer protocol, it doesn't do anything. It, it won't even show an establish adjacency on most, on a lot of platforms. It'll just say that it's running, but it won't say that it has a successful peer unless you actually register it for a protocol because it, it uses the information of that protocol to actually establish a, a peering to the other side. So when you register it with OSPF, it uses the information for the OSPF uh, interface and the other side to to create that session that it monitors.
0: Yeah. Again, as you pointed out, unless you actually register it, it's not especially valuable. And and it's, it's it's not a routing protocol. It's all about that faster convergence, although it is not the thing that is performing the convergence. It's just notifying OSPF, let's say, hey, you've got a link down. I can't talk to the neighbor anymore. You need to tear that session down, which leads to faster convergence. But it's up to OSPF to react to that notification from BFD. And then complete the convergence process.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's 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 kind of like if you if you have if running an eHRP and you have you know quite a large uh, you know you get in a situation where you can potentially get stuck in active or something like that. You have a large query domain. BFD is not going to help with that. It'll help it realize that it's down quicker, but it's not going to help it actually converge beyond the detection point faster. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So if I'm,
0: uh, well, maybe I'm considering using BFD who who do you think is a good candidate to leverage BFD in their networks? And, and maybe do you think there's someone who isn't a good candidate for it?
1: I think it's just very a clever protocol in a sense that it has a very specific solution in mind and it does a pretty good job at, at, at fixing that. So it's useful in several situations, supporting both single hop and multi hop, which we haven't really talked about too much. Um, and I'm saying, like, multi-hop and single-hop, where the hops are just literally IP hops. Uh, so the single-hop is what we've gone over mostly so far. It's a typical scenario of devices on the same layer two domain, uh, but not the layer one segment. So that's where, if you're in a situation such as that, that you require, you know, something like a uh, a router to a switch to another router that you require adjacency through BFD can definitely be utilized there pretty pretty efficiently without without any uh any afterthought I suppose.
0: Yeah, and that's a that's got to be a really common scenario from almost everyone can identify with that. You're going through as you put it, uh the same layer 2 segment, but you know maybe multiple layer 1 segments that would still be considered a, a single hop away as far as L3 is concerned. And where BFD I imagine that was the first use case ever, but then uh but then you said there's multi-hop as well?
1: Yes, yeah, so multi-hop BFD uh, is used to provide failure detection across some sort of underlay that you perhaps, maybe you don't have any insight within, right? So you have, uh, this can happen if you're peering maybe EBGP to your far side across some sort of provider network, but you're not using any tunneling. You're just doing an EBGP peer multi-hop straight across. So sometimes, you know, an issue could happen within that provider network that causes either intermittent traffic loss just enough to where your, PGP, your BGP peer stays up, or total traffic loss but then you have to wait you know perhaps you have pretty extended timers on that on that bgb peer and depending on what you're learning from that far side it can be pretty ter- detrimental to have you know a connection down or intermittent for that long so what you can do with bfd if you're in this scenario you can go ahead and create maps and you can register you can create a map for bfd uh, that kind of lets it know what's the far side ip address what's the near side ip address uh, and then you register with uh, BGP just as you would with any other protocol, and now it's actually—I uh, don't—in it, most implementations, you can't use the echo feature on this, but you, it still uses the control packets to go across. Like say, that uh, MPLS circuit that you have from an ISP, it'll still verify that control plane uh, connectivity from e- each EBG peer much quicker than you could with uh, BGP. So in that scenario, you're not necessarily connected, uh, say, directly through a switch. You're connected directly through some sort of underlay but you could still use BFD multi-hop in that situation to provide the same or similar benefits. Hmm.
0: And so really then about anybody that's running routing in whatever scenario could leverage BFD, assuming it's supported. Uh, It's not a particularly risky thing to do. It's a mature and pretty well-known and well-understood technology. Is there any scenario where mm, maybe you wouldn't bother with BFD at all?
1: I think, um, uh, I think I fall in a case where perhaps we don't utilize BFD very often because uh, we have a ton of satellite links, and between those satellite links, we have huge bandwidth disparities. So a lot of times, we have we have failover scenarios. We don't necessarily want it to fail over. Sometimes we're okay with a little degraded service as opposed to failing it over to a, you know, from a hundred fifty meg circuit to a an eight meg circuit, right? Because that that could sometimes be, you know, a little more, a little worse in yeah. some situations. So in that design, and with satellite links, you know, you have crazy latency. So a lot of times with our links, because it's so latent anyways, uh, BFT is a little too aggressive uh, in our situation. So for us, uh, in this particular case, all the times um, fast hellos provide a little more realistic failover because, you know, if you have a satellite link that already has almost, you know, 700 millisecond delay anyways, BFT's highest, you know, the lowest it can go as far as detection is usually... Echoes in it, you know. One second is the highest I think it goes. Something like that. I mean, we'd be getting failover pretty consistently, and it might cause a lot of churn in our underlay. And we kind of, we kind of found that uh, hellos do a pretty good job at, at discovering our failures. So BFD might be a little too aggressive in our case.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I I get that. Where um, as you put it, highly latent links, where the bandwidth is there, but occasionally it's gonna perform oddly, or, or not optimally, you know, satellite lengths. And I, yeah, I get it. That makes uh, makes good sense. Now, you know, we've been saying, or I, at least I was saying, that BFD, pretty well mature and standardized. Uh, do you have any comment on multi-vendor BFD, like a Cisco box to a Juniper box or anything like that? Have you ever had to do that? Does that work okay? Or any
1: thoughts there? Well, I mean, it's completely standardized. And like I said, I think it was, uh, don't quote me, but I'm fairly positive it was Juniper that originally brought it up. As far as a need, and I've never seen an implementation or done an implementation with it between two different vendors. Uh, but I mean, I've done it, you know, in labs and things like that, and I, I've never really seen any issues, especially in single hop scenarios specifically. Single hop seems to be one of the most common uses of it, and mm-hmm. probably one of the most widely supported, I would say, as well. I mean, most recently, just to just to mess around with it, you know, after I kind of started digging back into it a little bit, doing a lab between. Even something like a iOS XE and a Cumulus box, I didn't see any issues with it. Um, supporting the basics, you know, single hop and echo mode as well. Uh, running in asynchronous mode, sorry. Um, and then that's just, you know, base config, registering some protocols and using multi-hop. It also was able to get it to work through eBGP and multi-hop as well as OSPF virtual links, which is, which is another use case that we kind of, we, I didn't get to mention earlier, OSPF virtual links for that Ooh. multi-hop map.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good one. You brought that up. I hadn't, hadn't popped in my head till just now. Yeah, of course. Um, fairly common to have uh, have virtual links out there too.
1: Yeah. And you can use, you know, and it it kind of is beneficial to have some sort of more, I don't even, I don't know if they have a native detection with virtual links, you know, because they kind of build themselves up and then they don't actually, you know, check anything until they're being used. Right. So, hmm. so, so BFD can provide that uh, some detection for that as well. Uh, so when I'm reading through like documentation on a lot of the implementations for the uh, the different vendors, and I mean, this is supported outside of routers as well, like through firewalls and, and load balancers even support VFT in a lot of cases. Uh, they all seem pretty capable of running uh, the single hop mode without a problem, especially in asynchronous. Uh, I did notice a lot of disparity uh, when it came to capability with the multi-hop support uh, and in regard to asynchronous or demand mode and whether or not they ran everything in hardware or they still use a lot of it to cpu process uh, a lot some of the packets so it's not i mean it's not you're not gonna get a hundred percent parity on every box for every feature but for the most part multi-hop asynchronous seems to be pretty standard uh and uh multi-hop you know is is a little hit or miss but it's still pretty hmm. supported on most every routing platform um I'm, t- I'm gonna say hit or miss i'm speaking mostly about like the load balancers and
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that. That was about the answer that I, I expected. Um, expected you to say, and and I think just about anybody that's done multi-vendor or anything goes. Oh well, I know it's supposed to work, and I'll believe it when it actually works. You know, kind of a thing. So I would, yeah. I would expect if you're rolling BFD out multi-vendor that by and large it ought to work. But yeah, just buyer beware kind of thing. And uh, and if you're listening to this and you've had some BFD multi-vendor horror stories, just uh, go up to packetpushers.net and find this priority queue show and uh, leave a comment just so that other people that might stumble across this information know what uh, what challenges that you've run into on what versions and so on.
1: Yeah, and in, in some situations the default can the how the defaults on whatever product you're using can impact uh BFDs. Like for example, if ICMP redirects. So if you start, you know, if you have ICMP redirects, like on Cisco boxes, this is usually enabled enabled by default. Mm-hmm. So if you start sending out millions of echoes with the same source and destination, the receiving router is going to get that, send it back out of the same interface, and also generate an ICMP redirect because <sighs> it's going to think, oh, you know, send that back out. So that could cause you, you know, in some cases, people are using BFD to try to avoid CPU. I mean, I guess maybe not so much nowadays. But we have much better CPUs, but previously... Uh, so if you start throwing out, you know, millions of echo packets, and that router has to then generate ICMP redirects, it, you might find yourself in a situation where you, you just kind of, you're implementing a solution but causing a problem with it.
0: Yeah, I know that ICMP redirect scenario was really interesting. I, I did a blog post some years ago because of a problem that I had with that. Not that it was hitting the CPU so hard, it was causing some other problem, but it was really a bad network design that I'd inherited where there was a router that was two gateways on the same layer two segment, a router and a firewall. And depending on where you were going, you were routing to one versus the other. And as you might expect, the... Switch in question cranked up a lot of ICMP redirects, depending on uh, what exactly was going on that uh, resulted in I redesigned the network to fix that problem. Let's pause the podcast for just a moment to remind you of our sponsor, Pacler, makers of the PRTG Network Monitor. Now, if you're remembering the free PRTG tool from many years ago, and it was this fun little thing that's useful, but not really for grownups, it, you have really lost track of Paisler. PRTG is this very serious, full-blown network monitoring solution that integrates with many different parts of your IT stack. When they came up on our radar a year or so ago and began talking to us about what they were doing, it's like, oh, wow, this is not the PRTG I remember at all. The ERTG is many things. It offers a powerful alerting system. There are several different interfaces that you can uh, use to access all of its data, including there's a web interface and a Windows native interface, iOS and Android. ERTG has a clustering option, and then they have application support for all different sorts of apps like Apache and Oracle, for instance. There's a map designer feature with over 300 different types of map objects. They got distributed monitoring with remote probes, really handy if you're in a WAN environment. There's a SaaS option if you don't want to have to house PRTG internally. There's detailed reporting and more. It is, again, a serious network monitoring system well worth adding to your bake-off list, and you can try out the unrestricted version free for 30 days. All right, this is PRTG, so how do you find them? If you just Google PRTG, they're right at the top of the list there, or you can head to paceler.com. P-A-E-S-S-L-E-R, Paceler.com. And now, back to the show. So, okay. At the top of the show, I mentioned we were going to talk about Python. Well, now we're 25 minutes in just about, and I think we're going to finally get to that part. (laughs) Now that everybody should have a pretty good idea of what BFD is all about. So Python and automating BFD, why would uh, BFD automation be, be a useful thing?
1: Do you have a scenario in mind? I mean, yeah, so BFD is actually a pretty good candidate for an automation project, especially if you're just trying to learn or trying to write some sort of script or use a tool to kind of get your feet wet into uh, automation world. And you, you have this huge project where BFD has so many touch points, but the configuration between each touch point is really the same on a lot of them, but you, you can templatize this whole thing out.
0: So, Billy, by touch points, you're getting at you know different routers and interfaces or routing paragraphs, et cetera, that you would need to touch to create that BFD configuration and actually bring up sessions.
1: Exactly. Because BFD is you know is, is like a, a two-router situation, right, where each router has to peer with each other. That means that if you're going to deploy it in your entire enterprise between all your links, then you have to touch every router. So you have a ton of touch points, depending on how large your network is. But each touch point, for BFD at least, has very similar configuration on it. So you can easily... You know, write a quick script to just push the same config out to eat very, very much each device. Have some loops in there to where it comes back and lets you know how it's doing, and you can have it deployed in your whole enterprise in a matter of minutes, right? Hmm. As opposed to logging into each box and going through that that copy paste scenario.
0: Yeah. So you said loops, so that uh, it 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 knows how it's doing as in give you back some kind of a response saying you know that the paragraph that that like what device it's on or like the you know the code got pasted in well just to qualify what you mean there
1: yeah i suppose it depends on uh how advanced you are with with python or whatever the tool you're using is and how you you set up your control loops or how you set up feedback but yeah exactly so it can kind of if you're running a script that you want to go incrementally you can have it report back every time it it successfully configures a device, or it sees a session come up, or things like that. Just to let you know how it's going, or you can keep that all within the code itself, and then all it does is spit back the state at the end. Hmm. Okay. Depending on how, how how further you how far you want to go with it, I guess.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's talk about your thought process then, because um, you know my my background in programming is to I, I like to sit and and think through what it takes to achieve a certain process if I'm doing it by hand and then turn that into code. What, what would that look like? What are my checks and balances, the steps I need to achieve? Um, how do I know I've had success? So I'll, you know, I'll write all that out and then I'll begin to turn that into, uh, into a script, trying to get the script to replicate what's in my head on the assumption that whatever's in my head is actually good. So what's your thought process when you're automating a specific network task?
1: Yeah, so I would say that I represent kind of a majority of the uh, the air quotes, you know, traditional network engineers who are coming to terms with the fact that automation and, and fundamentals and programming are probably the next logical step that we're going to have to take on. So saying that, I'm pretty green when it comes to programming, only having like a few classes and things like that. But over the last year, I've been kind of working a lot on it. And for me, at least, the tough part was trying to come up with uh, legitimate use cases that I could solve with my limited background in uh in coding without resorting to one of the you know the other million tools that are already out there. So a lot of the projects I'd use with coding are a lot there's already you know a bona fide way to solve it, but like BFT implementation, for example, uh you could just as easily use Ansible. But I like to kind of use those opportunities for easy wins to kinda help myself learn programming, right? So so as of now, how I do it is uh, I go about scripting based on automating tasks I do now. Like I said, so exactly as I do them, just as you mentioned, right? So as I'm writing scripts, I basically use my scripts just to emulate human actions, as opposed to you know using, you know, the end goal is for application app- application kind of communication, right? So I kind of write scripts just to act like a human instead of act like a, a software, I guess. So as I'm conducting a task that I want to automate, uh, I take note of every decision point I come to. Uh, Even, you know, the smallest one. So when I get a series of decision points for the task, I then create a list of decisions made, and more importantly, the logic that was behind those decisions. So what are the outside influences that brought me to each decision as I made? So, you know, like, uh, what device do I log into? And how do I come to realize I need to log into that device kind of situations? Or what command do I put in? What influenced me to put that command in, right? So now that I have all those decision points, uh, the decision outcomes, and then what influenced the decisions, I started to look at how I can turn that into a programmatic process. So I turn influences into variables, my decisions into flow control points, and that end up, ends up yielding uh, if-thens, right, or flows throughout the script. And I found this to be a pretty easy way to break into the field and get comfortable with the idea of having scripts conduct tasks because I know exactly what they're doing, and they're doing exactly what I would be doing.
0: Yeah, I yep, I I know what you mean there. And I think there's a ton of value in that because as humans acting as network engineers on our networks, we've learned the things that are key and crucial about how our networks operate. And so we're taking our wisdom, our knowledge that we've acquired working on that uh, environment and then and then automating it, taking our skills and applying it, you know, in code. So you described having decision points and documenting them and how did you, you – know, what was the logic behind those decisions in other words? And you, you can – if you can put that into code, you've effectively taken your thought process and then asked the computer to do that for you. So you're still getting the benefit of, of your human wisdom but put into script format so you don't screw it up the next time and and it it goes faster. So yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I mean you were almost apologizing I think. Well, it wasn't you know two pieces of software talking to each other with APIs and so on. And um, I think, I mean, there's a different methodology there when you get into that that API layer style of programming. But I I also think that there's uh, you know a negative side to that in, in that you know pure developers who don't have the operational background find it challenging to write those kind of processes and make the software understand the things that they should know gathering data points from APIs and so on so it's a different i mean it's the logic and what you do with that knowledge and the decision points that make the script effective and useful and where i think a lot of software sometimes just falls down it's amazing billy how many uh, how many different vendors we talk to who uh are like so we wrote this thing is it good what should we do with it we'd <laughs> like some feedback cuz you know people with their boots on the ground so to speak have that insight more than uh, just raw development, even if the technique isn't as, I don't know, sophisticated, whatever you want to call it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and a lot of times for especially network devices, depending on your environment, you have to code to the lowest common denominator, which in a lot of cases is, is just SSH CLI. So you can make a program and you can put all your effort into it to control APIs, but perhaps you only have a, a small subset of devices that you can even interact with. So it's kind of a, how much juice do you get out of squeezing that script out? Um, yeah. When screen scraping in the end becomes, you know, your your most viable solution.
0: Which explains the viability of the Napalm project trying to normalize a lot of that stuff for people.
1: Yeah, Napalm, and Napalm even utilizes uh, NetMiko for SSH. So mm-hmm. so they all kind of come together in the end, and, and those are the kind of tools that make Python especially easy for anybody who's new to it. Napalm, NetMiko, and especially those two.
0: As you've been writing scripts to try different things, do you like it as opposed to what we're all, I guess, as you put it, traditional quote-unquote network engineers pretty used to just kind of banging around on the CLI device to device. Is this new way of doing things enjoyable to you?
1: I I actually really do enjoy it. Um, I kind of think there's a different paradigm when it comes to building scripts or applications when compared to doing a network build-out. I think in my mind, a network build-out is very much like a waterfall method where the end goal is to provide, you know, connectivity. You can't really stop after you've added a feature like IP addresses and then call that a sprint, right? You haven't really until you get your end solution. Your your job isn't done. So you you have to go all the way through to create that end solution and then afterwards you optimize it. Whereas with applications, you can go ahead and build out scripts and you can do it one feature at a time, one capability at a time. So uh, you can perhaps build a script that just can log in devices to grab information and that's it. And that's totally fine for the time being. You could just go ahead and use that until you figure out how to add more features and just add and add and and go until you have a robust program with it. So I like that idea of the whole sprint mindset, the agile mindset of just developing on the go and adding features as you need it.
0: Hmm. So you get this constant hit of, "Ooh, I added this today and that's cool. It's even better than it was. It was useful before and now it's better.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like when you when you first start learning something you get a lot of quick wins, right? Uh so it's get it gives you that little that high of of quickly grasping concepts that are pretty simple to people who've been in the field for a while, but if you're just learning, you know, it's it's a lot of a lot of quick euphoria.
0: Okay. When I write scripts, I struggle with a bit of laziness at times. So so there are certain things like sanity checking I might leave off to the side, like, eh, I know I'm going to put the right data in. And if I don't put the right data in, it'll barf. And that's fine because it's just for me. Do you think much about sanity checking your inputs that, you know, what you've typed into the script at the keyboard is making some sort of sense? Or do you just kind of count on yourself to only put sane things in?
1: Yeah, so I've I mean I've written uh, two two scripts that I've actually used I hadn't really given to other people to use so it does it also you know I I've, I kind of get the laziness there is that I I know what I have to input but with the intention uh, one of them was you know like a GUI based thing right just with Tkinter just to mess around using a Python library for Tkinter Tkinter however you say it and on that one I I kind of stuck a user into only being able to put in checkboxes right so you can control what the user puts in. And they don't have many free writing opportunities. And then the other one, with like the CLI-based thing, uh, I usually would just put in a try statement and have if the, if you put in any input that the script doesn't recognize or isn't looking for a specific format, it'll just spit back like a uh, you know incorrect kind of situation, but not very descriptive because, like you said, a lot of laziness comes into play when you're trying to get a specific task done. You know. Yeah, you want to have fun with the script. You don't want it to be homework. Yeah, I don't want to try to think of the million different ways that someone can input, you know, the word iOS, right? But.
0: but but, in fairness, there is a distinction between writing a script for yourself, I guess, and then writing a script that maybe a, a broad number of people would use or, or someone who's maybe not a network engineer, but you need them to use this script to accomplish something because they're on the operations team and that's part of what they do. I mean, so do you... Do you kind of see that with your scripts where coding for yourself is is different from coding for
1: somebody else? Yeah, I definitely I definitely think it's a very different thing. I think when I'm writing a script for myself, I kind of just do the bare bones. So I'm basically just trying to get it done, get the get the end result and uh, as as little not detail but as little sanity checking like we talked about as I can put into it. When I'm writing a script and my intention would be to for others to use it, I would put a much higher emphasis on how intuitive it can be. You know, so that I, I wouldn't want them to come back to me and have to ask as many questions. You know, for the for the background knowledge that I have, right?
0: Anticipate the questions that they would ask, and then you know, write the script so that it's you pretty much predicted what they're going to need to know or what they might wonder about, and clear those things up right out of the gate. So exactly, so that they're not coming back to you going, I, I don't get it, man, help me.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you have to anticipate what, how other people might might uh, interpret things. So if you have a script that has an input for for example, what operating system you have to know, okay, so maybe they'll put it in all caps, maybe they'll capitalize the first letter, things like that, that perhaps could can cause a a hang up in your script.
0: Well, okay, so let's let's kind of put a bow on this thing here. Um, We talked about BFD, we've talked now about Python and some fundamentals about how you construct a script. So let's put all this together. How, How would you go about tackling a BFD deployment with Python?
1: Yes, so I would use the same methodology that we spoke about earlier in that I would go first and define the scope of what I was trying to get done, you know, just exactly so I know what the goal of everything is, uh, and then go through every decision point to reach our end state. So in this case, our scope is, for example, offloading uh, forwarding plane detection from, say, OSBF to BFT and all of our links. So our end state would look like a few BFT sessions created and with all of our protocols all registered, right? So that's the end state that we're looking for. So decision points come from uh, from literally every point of the deployment. So if I were to go into it manually, uh, what would I be doing essentially and grabbing all those points? Then after getting all those points written down, I would determine what sort of approach uh, what the actual script would take. In this case, we'll be using Python, right? Uh, and then base base that uh, scope, decision points, and my end state on what sort of how I would start writing the Python. For example, like what libraries would I use? Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of times the common denominator for accessing devices through SSH, CLI, uh, and a few libraries exist. uh, As we kind of briefly went over, like Napalm is a great library if you have a multi-vendor environment and you're trying to normalize your configurations to go in those so you don't have to manually paste in CLI for each or manually paste in uh, vendor-specific syntax for logging into each device. Um, Another library that's pretty useful is called NetMiko by uh, Kirk Byers. And that's another uh, really useful one to facilitate those SSH connections and normalize how your script can actually log into a device and input commands.
0: Yeah, Kirk's been on the show before. So if you've never heard of Kirk Byers, you can dig through the Packet Pushers library, do a search, and you'll find uh, an interview that we did with Kirk uh, a while back. And I think we talked some NetMiko.
1: Exactly. So, so say for this case, you have, um, to make it simple as possible, you have for example, just say an all Juniper or an all Cisco environment, and you're trying to just get some config into those devices all at the same time, and you want it to be programmatic so you don't, you know, miss config here, or there, or miss a box or something like that. So in this way, I would probably just use NetMiko, write a script that loops through an input of maybe IPs for all the devices you're going to configure, have it go through, log in each device, and then throw in the config that you wanted to have thrown in there, right? And then as far as control loops, uh, I'd probably do something to have it in the script itself, go through each device, drop in the configuration, and then go back into each device and check for uh, peerings to be up through BFT. Make sure the protocols are registered through, you know, through screen scraping, right? Through simple, The same things you would do to check it out. You just have your script to do the same thing.
0: Right. In other words, don't just write the script and have it iterate through all the devices and push a bunch of code. You want to validate that peers have come up and and have the script generate some kind of report so you know when it's when the script's done its job what what the results are as you said just like you would as an engineer you don't just paste code and walk away you validate that everything's working as you expect
1: exactly and those things are for some people they might seem very distant or very uh you'd have to put a lot of effort into into getting that done in a script but really it's once you do it once you know then and you and you run it a few times and you trust it it's going to make now, other implementations is similarly as easy because another part about coding that I've I've really enjoyed is that everything is supposed to be made as broad or as generalized as possible and modular so that you can reuse that same script. So that same script you're using to deploy BFD, you know, maybe you have a new device coming online you want to deploy OSPF or whatever configurations you want to that one. You can use the same script and just add in, uh, maybe have different modules for different control loops that so you want to check up on.
0: I'm oh, I'm a big believer in reusing code and to be fair I'll use someone else's code if I can find someone who's done this maybe I don't you know maybe I don't need to rewrite it all from scratch maybe I want to because I want the learning experience but if someone's done something complicated that does what I need I'll go through the code get to a point where I understand it then just tweak it for my own environment you know whatever I need yeah. it's easier it saves a lot of time that way
1: I'm not trying to be a hero in the, in the programming world. I'm trying to just get stuff done, right? That's right.
0: That's right.
1: I think you guys had a, a individual on your show previously. who, he had a script that he was mentioning that went through and got all the IP addresses and put them into info blocks to have DNS resolution for his devices. And that was exactly an issue that I was having. So I went and found it and, you know, and ran that guy and it worked out perfectly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. GitHub is great. People's blogs are great and, and so on for all of that. Yeah,
1: exactly so yeah so that's how i would go about uh, getting that done and then at the end of it i'd have it return basically a state right so say on each device at the end of it it logs in, it, it after it's implemented the code it's it does something simple right it does like a, a screen scrape for bfd sessions to make sure that there's content in each one and then if if there's con if bft templates exist, if there's content in the registration and then it can return a true right and if not it'll return false and uh, then I'll have to go and, and you know, maybe manually intervene or or even go beyond that and and script more until it actually fixes the issue.
0: Now, this is where screen scraping for status kind of sucks. Uh, but, but it is, in a lot of cases, the, the simplest way to get something done at this point. But, man, this is where I am very hopeful for APIs as they continue to be supported by vendors and mature. Getting back that structured data is going to be so nice, so like you like you were just talking about, you know, do I see anything in my bfd session state kind of a a big, ugly, true or false, as opposed to running a specific API call that can give you back uh, a list of bfd peers iterating through them in a structured data kind of way and knowing conclusively that you got the peers stood up that you expected to or did not that's that 's the where i 'm really looking forward to api is continuing to to grow i mean there's some out there right but it's just as you said it varies from vendor to vendor what they do how they work what kind of data you can get out of it all is variable and so sometimes just using like a, a net napalm or and netmiko is just the easiest way to get things done at times
1: yeah i think it's like were talking about earlier. It's, it's napalm and netmiko give you that quick win right they give you the confidence to kind of go on beyond that and then and then you can start looking into you know what the development looks like for NetConf or rest comp and, and things like that and a lot of being rest, restful apis through http so i think it's definitely it's definitely becoming a requirement uh, in the industry at least but but there's still all those those companies have the the 5 to 7 year plan so they still have those devices that don't just don't support those things right now so right
0: exactly exactly
1: well, Billy Downing, this has been a great
0: conversation. We've been going back and forth on email for a while, and uh, this is this has been great. You know, we we kicked around ideas. Uh, would you tell people how they can find you on the internet, uh, your blog, Twitter, anything like that? You'd like to share?
1: Yeah. So again, like my name is Billy Downing. Um, you can find me on my I, I blog not frequently but sometimes at uh, networktechstudy.com and you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, most likely I'll probably be there most of the time.
0: Yeah, networktechstudy.com um that was the you know a link that you'd sent to us and I started digging around there's and right you, it's not like you're posting every day or anything but there are some pretty deep and uh, well researched and formatted articles there including uh, some of the python work you've done with some code examples and uh, and so on. So networktechstudy.com go check out Billy's blog. That would be great. And uh, I've been Ethan Banks, uh, your co-host. Most of you know me if you've been listening to the show. And you can find out all about me at PacketPushers.net. Just look at the host page. I'm listed there. Thanks for listening to Packet Pushers today. This has been the Priority Q show. You can find this in many more of our fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. And again, that's all at PacketPushers.net. We're on Twitter at PacketPushers. And uh, you can follow us on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook, kind of. We're there, I think, still. Uh, And you can rate us on Apple Podcasts. That's a thing that you would manually have to do, like typing words in onto your phone or something. But that would be amazing if you would take a few minutes and do that. Rate the show because it brings us up in Apple's magic algorithms and makes even more people aware that packet pushes exists. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.